0: Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And today we're doing something unusual, we're re-airing an episode we taped in June 2021 about how Israeli and Palestinian writers have written about the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza.
2: We're doing this, of course, because of what is going on in Gaza now. On October 7th, Hamas attacked civilians in Israel, killing about 1,400 Israelis and foreigners and taking about 240 people hostage. Subsequently, Israel's been bombarding Gaza, where approximately 2 million Palestinians live. And these attacks... Uh, Health officials in Gaza say have left over 8,300 people dead.
0: We're taping this uh, intro for this re-aired episode on Monday, October 30th. Clearly, these attacks have had devastating consequences for innocent civilians. They've also been covered extensively by news organizations with far more resources than we have. Uh, Around the world, the region is of course on people's minds, and all of this is taking place in a larger, longer context, much of which is discussed in this episode.
2: Sometimes we feel like it's important to react to breaking news, particularly when we feel like that news is being ignored or hasn't been covered well in the States. Examples of episodes like that might be our episode on the rise of authoritarianism in Poland or the floods in Pakistan or the East Palestine train derailment.
0: Yeah, but this show is about the news seen through the lens of literature. And one of the things literature can do is give us some long range perspective about an issue that is suddenly dominating the news. When immediate news and immediate takes are readily available, a long-range perspective might be in more short supply. So with that in mind, we're going to re-air this conversation that, as we mentioned, we originally broadcast in June 2021 between the scholars Shir Alon and Joseph Farag, who have extensively studied Israeli and Palestinian literature.
2: Farag talks about the evolution of the portrayal of the Palestinian self in literature throughout history as well as some of the themes and writers discussed in his book, Palestinian Literature in Exile, Gender, Aesthetics, and Resistance in the Short Story. Alone explains how the unprocessed trauma of the history of massacre and expulsion of Palestinians seems to stage an appearance in Israeli literature every decade. She also talks about Dali City by Orly Castel-Bloom, Minor Detail by Adanya Shibli, and Funeral at Noon by
0: Yeshayahu Korin. We also want to note that Minor Detail recently made headlines because the author who is Palestinian was supposed to receive a prize at the Frankfurt Book Fair, which just concluded. That ceremony was cancelled according to its organizers, quote, due to the war started by Hamas under which millions of people in Israel and Palestine are suffering, end quote. Uh, So many in the literary community subsequently denounced that cancellation, and then the publisher made the book freely available for the duration of the book fair. Um, in a digital format. So we will link to some related coverage of that in our show notes. Uh, And without further ado, uh, here we go, back to June 2021.
2: Because the three of you are colleagues, we're going to talk to both guests at once. And the three of you are together right now. Well, as it turns out, you're in the same house, at least, right?
0: Yes, we are in the same house. It's a show first. For the record, you were invited to. Oh, well, I'm sorry I couldn't
2: uh, just hop on a plane and fly up there. Um, save me a beer though. I am, however, really glad to, to talk to both of these guests. First, we're excited to have Sheer alone with us. Sheer is an assistant professor of Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Her work on modern Arabic and Hebrew literatures and cultures has appeared in Boundary 2, Comparative Literature, Arab Studies Journal, and other venues. She is currently uh, completing a book titled Static, Labor, Temporality, and Literary Form in Middle Eastern Modernisms, as well as working on projects on fictions and logics of security in the contemporary novel in Arabic and in Hebrew. Sheer, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. Happy to be here.
0: And we're also joined by Joe Farag. Joe is an assistant professor of modern Arab studies at the University of Minnesota. He's the author of Politics and Palestinian Literature in Exile, published in 2017, and his scholarly writings have appeared in the Journal of Arabic Literature, Middle East Literatures, and the International Journal of Islamic Architecture. Joe's research focuses on the intersection between modern Palestinian cultural production and Palestinian history and politics. And he also serves as board president of New Arab American Theater Works, which is a Minneapolis-based collective of Arab and Arab American theater artists. And a dubious credential, he's half of the duo that introduced me to my fiancé. Thank you, Joe. Uh, Joe, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure.
0: Very nice to have you with us. By the way,
2: just listeners who are, well, actually viewers, Joe and Sheer are sitting in Sugi's living room while Sugi is hiding away upstairs, so we don't have an echo problem. But they are all in the same house, although you can't tell from the video. We chose to have this episode because there was a significant amount of fighting protesting and finally airstrikes and death in the occupied west bank east jerusalem and gaza starting in early may until a ceasefire was announced between israel and hamas on may 21st oh and also it's sunday uh june 13th so netanyahu's out as the head of the israeli government um so a lot of news is happening uh the palestinian health authorities said at least 254 people were killed in gaza During this period, more than 1,900 wounded in Israel by May 17th, according to the New York Times. Ten people had died in Hamas rocket and missile attacks, and two had died in civil unrest. We are here to discuss the literature of the occupation and talk about how Palestinian and Israeli writers have handled it in fiction. But just briefly, for our listeners, could you help us set up the causes and parameters of this conflict in past May? Joe, we're going to
3: start with you. So the the kind of primary spark that that instigated the latest round of um, Israeli violence, primarily against Palestinians, um, was the pending dispossession of a number of Palestinian families of their homes in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of Jerusalem, Um, families who themselves, Palestinian families who themselves were the descendants of of refugees who had been themselves dispossessed of their homes in what became the state of, of Israel after 1948. Um, Around that same time, slightly preceding that, uh, uh, the um, Jerusalem authorities had closed off uh, what's called the Damascus Gate, which is a area around the uh, um, Haram Sharif, the the Temple Mount, uh, where Palestinians frequently would gather during Ramadan after uh, breaking fast. And so this was seen as an instigatory move that was um, meant to provoke hostility, uh, meant to provoke Palestinians into a response by allies of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who at the time was uh, fighting for his political survival. Um, and um, this is a pattern that we've seen over the course of Netanyahu's premiership of Israel, is every time there, he is facing a political crisis, be it a bribery scandal or fraud or whatever it may be, um, he or his allies take provocative moves uh, in order to instigate uh, Palestinians to respond and in doing so then justify their own much more dis, uh, disproportionately violent response in order in the name of suppressing Palestinian violence and terror, etc. And so this was just another instance in which um, prime, former Prime Minister now Netanyahu was happy to sacrifice Palestinian lives for his own political survival.
0: So, of course, Palestinian and Israeli literature is, is dealing with this long history. Joe, you write about the Nakba, the Naksa, and the First Intifada, and Shir, you've written about these also. Joe, can you define those terms for us and talk a little bit about how the Nakba has appeared in Palestinian literature?
3: Sure. Uh, so what, what I just described, this pending dispossession of a number of Palestinian families from uh, the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of, of Jerusalem, who themselves were, were previously dispossessed, uh, in, um, in a previous round of, of, of Palestinian uh, ex- expulsions and, and, and kind of forced flights um, is, is what we, a lot of us, refer to as an ongoing Nakba. Nakba is simply the Arabic word for catastrophe. And when historians talk about um, Palestine and the Palestinians, there's a central point in 1948, which Israel considers the, uh, the birth of the Israeli state, which is concomitantly what Palestinians refer to as the Nakba, which is the catastrophe. Um, but I think it's more rightly seen as a kind of longer ongoing process rather than an isolated historical um, instance, uh, being the establishment of the state of Israel. And so seen as a kind of broader process than, uh of dispossession of rounding up Palestinian uh, populations that do remain into ever smaller uh, enclaves, um, into fragmenting the, the actual territorial integrity of whatever, um, whatever little remains of historic Palestine, etc. All of these things kind of combine into an ongoing uh, system of uh, dispossession and of settler, settler colonialism that I think it, is, is better encapsulated uh, as, as in terms of thinking of the Nakba as that longer term process.
2: We wanna talk a little bit about, uh, and and Sheer, maybe you can start off by answering this question. Um, In American literary culture, right? The general impression of uh, prominent Israeli fiction writers like Amos Oz has been that they are critics of the occupation and the Israeli government and military. Um, First of all, is that true? And secondly, who are the others of Israeli and Palestinian literature that we should be paying attention to as readers?
1: Okay, so um, to begin with this question of the, I guess even the American perspective of the Israeli left wing, which is, um, let's say, far more conservative than anything that is actually considered left in Israel. And I would say that, um, you know, writers like uh, Amos Oz, who is usually read together with uh, David Gossman and um, Bet Yoshua as this kind of... um, trio of the liberal um, Israeli politics did um, represent a mode of of critique of the occupation, as you said, since 67. But I think in order to clarify this, um, we have to do a little bit of of history. Um, So Joe was talking about the Nakba, um, the expulsion of 1948. Um, The second term um, Sugi asked about was uh, the Naksa, which is the literally translate to the withdrawal in Arabic and refers to the 1967 war, uh, which is when um, Israel occupied the West Bank and Gaza and the Golan Heights and basically established this ongoing um, situation of of an illegal occupation, a lack of established state borders, um, and a process of settlement building, which is not recognized by international law. Now, I think this historiography is important for for literature as well. I mean, we see a difference between the literature of the period between 48 and 67 and the literature that comes after that.
2: Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back.
1: I'm just
2: going to break in real quick and ask, what is that difference?
1: I think it's a, it's a long answer. Um, and I think some of it, we'll, we'll get to it a little bit okay. later. But in the literature leading up to 67, you really see Hebrew literature writing itself as a settler colonial literature. It is asking itself, how do I establish myself in this space? Um, it is seeing the ruins of Palestinian villages around it. Um, and it must, you know, um, articulate a position in relation to them um, that also explains um, Jewish so- sovereignty in relation to the Arab minority and to the Palestinians who are, who are gone, who have been expelled. After '67, you know, in the especially in the '80s and '90s, and um, when the Intifada, the Palestinian uprising, begins. N- this political energy turns to the occupation and to protesting this form of control um, of um, um, huge population that are not citizens, um, that do not have any sorts of citizenship rights, um, as a kind of um, a solution to the anomaly, which is the Israeli state. And questions about the Nakba, the about 1948, about the um, original expulsion, are to a large extent overlooked. Um, now, in the past few years, it is impossible to ignore them again, um, and there's... I mean, I feel like there's a lot of complex political dynamics going into it. So I'll just speak about Amos Oz.
2: No, no, that was really great. Now mm. I'm going to lead you back to Amos Oz. But that was yeah. Yeah, that was very helpful. Thank you for doing that.
1: Oh, of course. So, yeah, if you have more specific questions, because trying no, no, to summarize good. a lot of history here. But Amos Oz really um, represents um, a generation in Israeli writing that comes out of this settler ethos of 48 and feels somewhat betrayed after 67, um, because suddenly the state that they identify with is engaged with these kind of explicit atrocities and an illegal occupation um, because of demographic changes within Israel um, that have to do with relationships between uh, Mizrahi Jews, so Jews of uh, Middle Eastern origins and Ashkenazi Jews. Amos Oz's writing um, really represents this kind of, um, at least when I read it, nostalgic yearning to this period of innocence when the state was small, uh, when the Arabs were you know, obedient, um, when men were men and women were women. Um, so yes, absolutely, was a very important voice against the occupation of 67 as a means of, you know, reestablishing the righteousness of the um, Israeli state within its 48 borders. Which
3: know? is kind of ahistorical to go back to what you were saying mm-hmm. earlier, but, you know, given that previous stage of Israeli writing, which was much more forthright about confronting that 1940, yeah. you know, the 1940 to 1967 mm-hmm. periods and the kind of settler coloniality of that. And my, I mean, this is kind of, it p- kind of predates that, but my, my favorite n- n- work of literature on this is actually Theodor Herzl's Alt Neuland, mm-hmm. which is published in 1898, I think it is, mm-hmm. and is completely uh, unabashed about the colonial uh, uh, nature of the uh, kind of w- what he calls the new Jewish society. They, they right. ha- didn't, new Jewish society in Palestine, didn't even refer to it as, as, as Israel at the time. But he makes very clear that this will be a wonderful boon to the world's imperial powers and we will develop cures to malaria here that will allow uh um europe's imperial powers to venture into the great african heart of darkness because we will kind of break that final fetter for uh of, of you know malaria preventing uh greater um you know incursion colonial incursion into africa and so this new Jewish society was seen as a kind of integral part of that um, settler coloniality. And, and a yeah. lot of, from my kind of more uh, cursory knowledge of Israeli writing, there was a period where that was pretty kind of frankly uh, addressed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I do want to say, when we speak about Israel as a as a settler colonial society, um, it and of sounds very radical right now, very um, like a new framework, but this was very explicitly the way the settlers saw themselves. They, their model was a colonial movement um, of colonial settlement. They called the settlements colonies. Um, There was nothing that was, you know, um, secretive about it um, as a a model by which the state was imagined. Of course, it's very different. Zionism is very different as a settler colonial movement because it doesn't have a metropolis because it's a settler colonial movement of refugees. Um, so of course, it has its specificities, but um, I think you know when we use this language right now, we should remember that this is also the language that was used you know very much up to the '50s um,
2: well, I live in Kansas yeah. City. This mm-hmm. was a settler colonial yep. society.
1: We're on mm-hmm.
2: the Santa Fe Trail, you know. Yeah. Um, Joe, just to just to finish off this question, uh, Shir gave us some of the, you know, like very famous Israeli writers. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about who are the the great Palestinian writers that you would think, you know, from this period should be Listen to right or wrong.
3: Yeah, so I'm always, you know, I always, you know, fear reifying the canon. You know, if you just name the same authors that everyone's already talking about, then then you just kind of contribute to that further entrenchment. But you know, there are similarly these kind of periodizations uh, in Palestinian literary history that have their particularly notable figures. And um, so in the similar kind of 19 to 48 to 1967 period. Palestinian literature, and this is very, very broad strokes, there are, you know, exceptions to this, certainly, um, but kind of broad strokes, Palestinian literature kind of conveyed the Palestinian experience of being one of kind of abject um, um, exile, refugeehood, uh, you know, at the mercy of the, you know, quote, unquote, host states that house the refugee camps um, at the mercy, you know, almost kind of like um, um, this, this kind of. Um, an articulation of, of, of victimization, kind of uh, primarily, that after 1967, and with the... Uh, it, it's impossible to overstate kind of how gargantuan the defeat of the Arab armies were in, was in 1967, where the combined armies of Egypt, uh, uh, Jordan, uh, Iraq, and Syria were within a matter of days, really within a matter of hours, handily defeated by um, the Israeli military. So all of the hopes that Palestinians had pegged on to the the Arab states uh, and their vaunted armies to liberate them uh, were dashed. And there was this deeply iconoclastic moment that necessitated a Palestinian kind of reinvention of self. And it, it's it's no coincidence that in that in 1968 we have you know the the rise of Palestinian uh, armed resistance movements, which had been operating kind of um, sporadically here and there in in the years leading up to it, from beginning from the early 1960s, but from 1968 onwards you see a really sustained armed resistance movement and multiple different armed factions emerging, and so literature responds by. Um, re Reconceiving the Palestinian self from one of being an abject victim into one uh, of a kind of heroic resistance fighter. And this plugs in at the same time as, of course, the Tet offensive in Vietnam. You have Algerian uh, um, independence uh, struggles happening. You have this kind of global third world um, uh, anti-imperialist foment that's taking place. And Palestinians, during this period, see themselves as part and parcel of that global movement. And so once again, this kind of uh, anti-colonial, anti-imperial ethos reasserts itself. And the figure, the iconic figure of the Palestinian goes from being the abject refugee to the kufia clad uh, resistance fighter with the Kalashnikov. Um, And so that also comes to be reflected in the literature, but also quite wryly and 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 i think not very seriously like uh, palestinian literature doesn't take the figure of the palestinian resistance fighter during this period um you know too too seriously you know there's a lot of um skepticism towards the potential of the uh, armed resistance to actually deliver um um you know it, national independence and sovereignty who are some of the writers you're thinking about from that period? So in the earlier period, I, I include him because he was really the first exponent of this ethos of resistance. Is Ghassan Kanafani, um, you know, probably the most iconic, the most canonical of Palestinian uh, prose authors. Mahmoud Darwish, of course, is is is, is the, the most iconic Palestinian poet. I have to confess, my knowledge of poetry is is, is incredibly paltry, uh, not just compared to my knowledge of prose, just in general. My knowledge of poetry is is, is quite paltry. And so, so there's Ghassan Kanafani. there's uh, Jabra Ibrahim Jabra. You also have, starting in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, the emergence of avowedly f- and, and outspokenly feminist Palestinian authors like Sahar Khalifa and uh, Liana Badr, um, who... Who were some of the most kind of barbed critics of um, Palestinian armed resistance? Because, you know, with the with the Algerian case not far in, in in the background, where Algerian women played a key role in resistance and then were relegated to the domestic sphere upon and and were you know, you know horribly marginalized just generally. Um, there was a a concerted effort by Palestinian feminists in general and feminist authors in particular. To, to not reify the, or, or further lionize the kind of very masculinist vision of, of national uh, independence movements, uh, uh, central to which of course was the armed, uh, uh, all predominantly male Palestinian resistance fighter. There are, there are examples, certainly I don't wanna kind of neglect the fact that there were uh, female Palestinian resistance fighters, Leila Khaled being the most iconic example. Um, So women did certainly take a more prominent role in armed resistance beginning in the 1960s as well. But um, the response of a lot of feminist authors was to be kind of skeptical about this very patriarchal, macho
1: nationalist movement.
2: Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back.
0: I feel like it's sort of predictable that I'm fascinated by this, um, as someone who writes about Sri Lankan tamels. Um, But that is, it is fascinating. And also, when I was reading your work, listening to you talk, I, cheer. you mentioned um, Amos Oz as someone being nostalgic for the 1948 to 1967 period of greater innocence, the smaller state. And then, Joe, when I was reading your work, you were talking about kind of a, a generational Arab critique of... Um, like sort of people post 1967 critiquing their elders as people who had been in you know you, uh sheer I think you use the word obedient and you know write this so the the kind of conversation going on between these literatures is is so interesting and then when we were talking before this conversation um you know of course the nakba is this massive trauma and it's and it's known as such and I think people think of it as a Palestinian trauma. And of course it is. And then Shira, you said to me that it was also a trauma for Israelis. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and about uh, discovering the Nakba again and again in Israeli literature.
1: Yeah. Um, so when I say the Nakba is a Jewish-Israeli trauma as well, I'm I'm speaking about you know the trauma as a... As a Trauma is a structure, you know, we usually um, associate trauma with um, victims, with victimhood. But the fact is, trauma is a threatening experience that the self does not want to to process, right? And it remains unprocessed, it remains unnarrated, it remains repressed. Um, And then as Freud writes, what happens is this material, this repressed content Um, inevitably comes up, um, inevitably returns. Um, The principle of return is this obsessive repetition and obsessive chewing over these materials um, that you'd rather not deal with, you'd rather shove down. And we see something very similar, I think, in Hebrew literature and culture, particularly in this early um, period um, of the 50s, 60s, up to the 70s. Um, as um, Joe was saying, in 1948, the expulsion of the Palestinian was a known fact, and we see it very clearly and explicitly in literature. Um, so the poet Natan Alterman wrote poems about this, journalistic poems, where he's very clearly chronicling the um, massacre um, of Palestinians in Lyd um, where there was a lot of um, um, riots and violence just a few weeks ago. Um, and um, he's documenting the expulsions of its citizens. Um, there is a very famous uh, novella called uh, by Samech um, who was a fighter in the 48th War. He later became a politician and it's it's a Magnificent text that narrates the expulsion of a Palestinian village from the point of view of a soldier, and there is nothing that is secret there. It's all very clear. He looks at the village and he says, "You know, we are creating a Holocaust. We are creating." You know, he looks at them. He sees the Jewish refugees um, from Europe from just a few years earlier, and from you know discussions. This was this novella was a bestseller um nobody thought this was something that was hidden but in years afterwards the story of the expulsion was um denied um very i would say both you know passively people didn't talk about it but also very actively so you know there were hundreds and hundreds of palestinian villages that were um that their citizens were expelled or they ran away and were not allowed to come back in the 50s um, Israel starts a campaign to destroy these villages to not leave them there as monuments to the destruction. Um, very famously, in a lot of places, forests were built over um, these ruins. Maps are changed, names are changed. Um, there is a very big campaign to change all the names um, of, be it towns or geographical markers or, or um, you know, historical markers to their. Hebrew names, that completely erase the Palestinian um, layer of this geography. And what happens is that in 1967, you have a book like, a story like um, Against the Forests by um, Bet Yoshua, a very famous novella as well, in which you you have a grad student who needs to finish his dissertation. This might be familiar to a lot of us. So he takes himself to some like writing riding retreat in the woods. He takes a job as a woods keeper. And it turns out that there is, um, you know, under the woods, um, there is the ruins of a Palestinian village. And he's not aware of that. The woods have to be burnt down in order for this village to be revealed. So, from something that was common knowledge, the Nakba, the Palestinian catastrophe, the expulsion, became, is staged in this literature as a story that is hidden and has to come to light. Um, in another book that I'm writing on now, which is not as well known, but is is just, I wish it was, it's called Funeral um, at Noon, by a writer called Ishayahu Hukoren And this, it was written in 66, published in 74. And you know, this is a settler colonial text par excellence, because it's so obsessed with marking the land and marking the geography. And it takes place in a small Israeli colony by the border. And right next to it, there are ruins of a Palestinian village. And it's called in the text, in the very first line, the Abandoned Arab Village. Now, I heard an interview with the um, writer of the text, with the Kuan once. And he said, you know, nowadays, everybody's making a big deal that this is happening in a Palestinian village, but I didn't even think about that. The village was just, you know, part of nature. It's, uh, the history is unseen. Um, And, you know, you read this or you listen to him and you're saying, what do you mean it doesn't mean anything? Of course, this is about the Palestinian village. The novel is about this dissatisfied housewife that keeps returning again and again um, to this, um, destroyed village, and she doesn't really know why, And um, but that's where she goes in this kind of obsessive return to this moment of, of constitutive violence of the state. But when Yisrael Yahu Kuren wrote it, when the book first came out, the Palestinian village was not associated at all with this history, even though it's right there in the middle of the text. So... It has this capacity to, to disappear. We see this cycle happening again and again. Literature every few years stages the discovery of the Nakba because it's not process. It's not, it's like the repressed comes up and then it's just acting out. There is no working through, there is no actual work of decolonization, um, of okay, what does it mean that our lives are built on ruins? What does it mean that our homes were somebody else's homes? Um, it is just you know shoved under the carpet again to reemerge you know ten, fifteen years later. And part yeah. parcel
3: of that is the figure of the mute Palestinian. That mm-hmm. again, in 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 facing the forest, um, uh, there is a an elderly Palestinian man who who lives in that forest. Mm-hmm. Um, but his, his, I think, his tongue has literally been cut out in, yeah. in, in in that in that story, and so he is unable to to articulate uh, his own, you know, connection to to that to that land. Mm-hmm. In Es Izhar is the prisoner. Mm-hmm. You have another mute Palestinian. Yeah. In Amos Oz's My Michael, you have the mute Palestinian twins who Hannah, I think, that's the protagonist's name, fa- has these kind of violent sexual fantasies about. Yeah. And so you have you know, in, in tandem with that, s- seemingly some awareness of the silencing of Palestinians within the narrative that is silencing Palestinians.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is why I'm saying it's, you know, this is a, a staging, it's a literary trope. It's a mean to keep like talking about how we just discover this amazing truth is a way not to speak about what it actually means. It's a way to keep talking about ourselves and our process of, like, nobody told us, we didn't know, some means to keep engaging with this self-digging. But I do think think things are um, changing now in the past, like, 15 years. uh, We do see... um, We do see... no smaller experimentation and writers um, that are thinking about um, modes of collaboration, modes of translation, um, that really take responsibility for this kind of history. So um, one example is um, the Translators Circle in Jerusalem. Um, It's a group that um, works on translations from Arabic into Hebrew. it's led by um Yehuda Sharabani. We we'll can talk about him later, too. And it's um, the purpose there is to think of translation very consciously as a practice that is grounded in unequal power um, and as a decolonial practice. So, for example, on any um, book that they translate, they will have at least two people uh, working on it. One who is... Um, one Jew and one Palestinian, or one person whose native tongue is Hebrew and another one whose native tongue is Arabic. Um, so they work a lot on collaborative translations. They um, work a lot on trying to dismantle the ways that translation can be a process of appropriation or silencing. Um, so this is one example of what I would call, you know, taking up this history and actually using it as a basis for working through, creating something new, not staying at this moment of, of stunned revelation of your so would, origins. would
2: you put the movie Waltz with Bashir in that moment of stunned revelation category?
1: There is a genre called shooting and crying.
3: <laughs> Waltz with Bashir is a case study in this genre of shooting and crying because um, it, it, it really kind of... Bears the tortured soul of this otherwise idealistic, pure Israeli soldier and the kind of the horrible things that the situation, you know, compels him to do and how you know, how much he struggles with that in in, in, and and so it's it's his own subjectivity that is constantly being centered in that narrative to the exclusion. And I I'm I'm not the least bit surprised to hear that that is uh, that 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 film made a splash here because it does seem to kind of resonate with. an again, this kind of idealistic American notion of the self of uh, as being a benevolent, fundamentally kind of force against all evidence to the contrary
2: <laughs> yeah i mean as someone who's written about war like in american sniper another film that i consider a bad propaganda war film um there's a moment when the sniper guy i forgot his name i don't even want to know his name uh is like uh trying to decide whether to shoot a child um but the scene is played, so, like, worrying about what kind of moral injury it's going to do to him. <laughs> not whether it's going to hurt this kid or not, right? There's no awareness of the person. That kid is just there as, like, well, will he do a bad thing or won't he do a bad thing? And how bad is he going to feel about it later? And that's the, that's a real problem for narratives like that. I
3: it's think. a it's a plot device. The, the, the humanity of the other or the inhumanity of the other is a plot device to test our protagonist and see, you know, does his moral fiber hold under these strenuous conditions or does it finally crack and how does he deal with it in its aftermath
2: okay we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back
0: sure you're talking a little bit about disruptions of process in terms of translation that's fascinating to me and you both work on, untranslated literatures as well. Um, and I'm also just really interested in how we're talking about time, which is for me as a fiction writer is like always the main problem. And you wrote a piece for the LA Review of Books that makes an interesting argument about minor detail, a recently translated book by the Palestinian writer, Adania Shibley, which sort of shifts time in such a way that so that, you both um joe in fact i think you maybe were talking about the nakba as an ongoing event you've both talked about this as as it not being that single moment but as a as a process and you wrote about how this book rather than having the past seep into the present has the present seep into the past and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that book about its relationship to this political moment and also about its its handling of time i was just fascinated by this piece hey
1: thank you yeah i'd be really happy to talk about it i I'm happy to talk about Adania Shibli wherever I can. She's a fascinating, fascinating contemporary Palestinian writer. Um, Her books are um, so different from the kind of rich, heroic narrative mode that um, Joe was surveying um, earlier. And um, Minor Detail is, is just beautifully translated. I really recommend it. Um, so I just want to plug it there. And I think this, this book is so fascinating, um, the point of origin of this text is an incident that, that really happened um, in 1949. So this is after the end of the, of the war that we keep circling around here, um, the war of the Israeli independence and um, the um, dispossession. And it was an incident in which a group of soldiers that were based in the um, desert in the Naqab, um kind of supposed to guard against what was called an infiltrators, which was just Palestinians trying to get back to their homes after they ran away f- from the military. So they're supposed to uh, keep the area clean from um, Arabs. It's quite explicit. Um, and what happened then is that they... Um, They encountered a man and a little girl. They killed the man um, and they basically held the girl hostage, a Bedouin girl hostage um, for two days in the camp. Um, She was sexually abused and eventually killed. Um, And this was, you know, we're talking about a history that is silenced. This story was unknown. There was a a trial at the time. Um, People were, you know, Sent to jail over it. It was seen as a very unusual um, event, but but it was secret and only in I believe 2008, some journalists kind of stumbled upon documents from the trial and published a piece on it. Um, this is the piece that Adania Shibli and the character in Adania Shibli's book reads in the newspaper, and and she decides the character decides to. Um, try and find out more about that girl because because we know nothing about her. The archive has nothing about her. Nobody knows her name. Nobody bothered to figure out back then what family or tribe or people she belonged to. Um, She was very literally buried in the desert. And the novel um, is divided into two parts Um, The first part takes place in 1949, Um, so it narrates very bleakly the incident itself. And the second part takes place uh, more or less in the present and follows this amateur detective as she tries to find out more about the girl. Um, And what my question was reading this book is, what is the relationship between these two parts? What is the relationship between the past and the present? you know, we often speak about, especially when you know historians dealing with archives, there is this responsibility to the past. We have to bring out um, silenced voices. We have to, you know, give them voice again. We have to make them present. We have to make these stories circulate again. Um, so the idea is that the we have in the present we have some responsibility for the people of the past. They gave us, we're tasked with something. And there is a sense like that in the novel as well Um, but at the same time um, it's a completely futile search. She doesn't find anything. This is not a spoiler. Um, I mean nothing, this detective search leads to to nowhere. Um, So this project of the redemption of the past doesn't, or the redemption of the present thanks to the excavation of the past doesn't work. So in that case, what is the relationship between the past and the present? Um, And there are all these little details, minor details, like the title, that tie between the two parts of the book, really random um, things that keep appearing um, in these two sections, like clues. Um, But it's very tragic because our narrator can't read them as clues. She's completely oblivious to them. Mm, we can read them because we have access to the other part. But for her, um, there is no process of, of deciphering. And what I think Shibley is trying to do there in this book is trying to ask, okay, how do we write a historical novel about a past, um, a past event that happened you know, 70 years ago already, when that past is not that different from the present. And this goes back to what Joe was um, talking about, this um, idea of the Nakba as an ongoing process. So it didn't stop in 48. Um, It was not a one-time event, a one-time trauma that we're still dealing with its repercussions, but it's actually um, an ongoing process of dispossession um, and I think it appears very clearly with the, you know, instigations of the last um, cycle of violence, which is very explicitly about you know, kicking people out of their homes, taking over more um, areas. Um, but this idea of the Nakba as an ongoing process, not a one-time thing, is fairly, is fairly new, I think. It's appear, it starts to circulate, you know, in the early 2000s. Um, when, you know, after the end of the Oslo Accords, it's, it has to do with a sense of, you know, history going nowhere, um, an inability to imagine some future. Everything is like, we're stuck in this ongoing present. And this is the kind of temporality that I think Shibli manages to capture in this novel. Um, a present that is so pervasive, that has no way out, that has no, um, vision of change that it you know, it colonizes the past as well. It takes over the past as well. We can't even imagine a past that is different, um, that is other mm-hmm. from the present in which we're living. Yeah. Ta-
3: time is such a big problem for Palestinian literature because you have on the one hand these kind of halcyon uh idealized romanticized nostalgic reminiscences of the past and you have this you know utopian idealized you know future
1: mm-hmm. uh
3: hoped for a future of, of national independence and, and 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 all the rest of it and the present is is kind of squashed between those two all-powerful kind of uh historical imaginations backwards and forwards and and so it 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 creates like you so often encounter the sense of limbo in Palestinian literature, where in the present is just this kind of exists in a a kind of non space. Um, Mm. There is, you know, and so space and time become very integrally entangled in one another as well. So so time spent in statelessness in exile is essentially time outside of time. Uh, It's time, um, you know, which... I think also has resonances with certain jewish literatures right like it, it's it's so remarkable um, that the ways in which palestinian exile is now essentially kind of restaging mm-hmm. uh you know down to next year in jerusalem right like mm-hmm. you know these these longings for return with obviously their own you know very different partic- particularities but the problem for narrating temporality in both of them i think is very is very similar which is mm-hmm. that the present time being spent in exile is, essentially exists as time outside of time. And so how do you narrate time that is stagnant, essentially?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's not, you know, it's not just a uniquely Palestinian thing. It's not just uniquely a stateless thing. I, I think it has very much to do with with the neoliberal present with, um, you know, Mark Fisher and can't imagine anything beyond capitalism.
3: It's easier to imagine what the, mm-hmm. the the just the destruction of of the universe or yes. the planet mm-hmm. than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Yeah,
1: exactly, which brings us to dystopias. Yes. But I mean this idea of of a inability to imagine um any viable future of being stuck in a present, I think we see it um in, you know, in uh the queue, this Egyptian novel. Um and we see it in Hebrew literature as well. This Mm, kind of working within the horizon of neoliberal accumulation um, and not being really able to imagine what comes after that, precisely after the, the collapse of this revolutionary moment of 67 that uh, Joe was speaking about, and we no longer have a vision of a global socialist revolution. Um, and then after 2000, we no longer have a vision of you know, two states, um, one next to each other, um, in the Middle East. Um, all we have is this process of, you know, crisis management. Just can hope to, you know, keep this going for as long as possible without creating too much damage until somebody has a better idea. Mm-hmm.
3: And there, you know, to, to to go back to the story that you referenced earlier, Hir, *Hirbet Hize*. Mm-hmm. The final, I think it's the final scene in that, as the unnamed soldier is is expelling, is putting this a, a pregnant woman onto a a truck to to haul her away. He he says something along the lines of, you know, what is going to become of that child, mm-hmm. right? You know, like like there is there is even in that novel, which is published in 1949, which means it was written as these events are taking place there's this remarkable prescience in it that knows that this is going to you know yeah. that this will return um yeah. and 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 it does constantly over and over
1: mm-hmm.
3: um and which again creates that sense of cyclicality and stagnation that that is um a real dilemma i think for for narratives
0: so joe just a little bit earlier you spoke about um the rye port- the riley humorous portrayal of the palestinian resistance fighter and i was curious to have you talk a little bit more about palestinian literature's humor and capacity for self-critique um despite the fact that you know you write that palestinians are sticking a claim to identity and land in part through cultural production in part through writing and you are i think is it fair to say you're you're impressed by this capacity for self-critique i'm impressed I'm I'm always interested in art that has the capacity for self-critique and what form that takes. And it seems like here, part of it is humor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So
3: on, on the self-critique note, which I think is really important to highlight, because anyone who's read Benedict Anderson or knows anything about the role that the novel plays in kind of fostering a national identity um, knows how important it is that that literature do this. And so, and it becomes all the more important in the case of a a scattered dispersed population like the Palestinians who lack you know a unified school system or museums or you know all the usual accoutrement of creating a, uh, a cohesive uh, national identity that is shared among a, a broad uh, spectrum of the popu- population imagine the challenges of, of retaining a Palestinian identity while dispersed over, you know, over the globe for successive generations. And so the fact that literature does not balk at criticizing that self same national identity that it is also in the process of, of creating um, is to me very remarkable that that, you know, and, and when I teach Palestinian literature to students, I think they expect it to be a very kind of ang outwardly angry and, you know, damn Israel and 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 to be, but in actual fact, Palestinian literature spends far more time critiquing both, you know, the, the Palestinian body politic and the Arab body politic more broadly. And so, um, so that's a really noteworthy element. Um, unsurprisingly, perhaps, Palestinian literature is on the whole pretty bleak. Uh, humor is very much the exception rather than the rule in Palestinian literature. And so when it does emerge, I think it makes it all the more noteworthy. And so, you know, there is this conspicuous cluster of humor around um, literature and it must be said cinema as well produced by Palestinian citizens of Israel. So those so we've been talking about, Palestinians dispersed in exile, etc. But among those Palestinians who, the, you know, the, the one tenth of the population that did manage to remain within what became uh, Israel... Uh, are now in this absurd situation in which they haven't gone anywhere, but Palestine has left around them essentially. you know so they have the inverse problem of, of the exiles in a way. And they you know they are referred to as Israel's Arab citizens, so they have their Palestinianness stripped away from them even kind of in terms of the nomenclature to go back to what sheer was saying earlier about the the, the nomenclature. Um, and so unsurprisingly from, Authors like Emil Habibi uh, or filmmakers like Ilya Sleiman, you find this streak of dark, um, ab- you know, absurdist humor um, that is being used uh, to comment on the darkly, absurdly humorous situation that those Palestinians. Now find themselves in as citizens of the state, and and you know on paper fully fledged equal rights, etc., Citizens of the state that is responsible for the destruction of of of, of Palestine, um, and so they articulate that through this very wry um, but also darkly humorous mode that is conspicuous to I think I, I really struggle to to think of Palestinian authors in exile who write in this similarly. Rye,
1: so funny. Um, Don't yeah. take themselves so seriously. Yeah,
3: as opposed to, for instance, is Israeli literature, which which has embraced more of this kind of absurdist humor.
2: Well, speaking of that, I mean, shears written about um, Orly Bloom's Dolly City, which is uh, speaking of dark humor, I guess. Um maybe you could talk about that book a little bit. I know you were involved in publishing pushing for it to be published and and have been had a sort of and written about that book.
1: Yeah. Um so so Dolly City is a is really a kind of event in in Hebrew literature. Um I should say it was published originally um was translated and published in Britain in translation, but uh, it was very quickly went out of print and you couldn't um, get the translation anymore. So uh, we got it uh, reissued um, at Dalkey Archive Press because, you know, this is the novel, as you said, is a very dark, gruesome, macabre satire, um, not just about uh, Israel, but about motherhood in general. And I think there's always um, appetite to read about the, the... psychoses of motherhood. Um, So basically, (laughs) I don't know if Sugi agrees with me, but um, basically Dolly City, the protagonist um, is Dr. Dolly, who is a kind of a quack doctor. She, um, as her mother says, she likes to cut for the sake of cutting. And one day Dolly finds a baby in a trash bag and decides to adopt it. Um, Now, we should also say that um, Dolly lives in Dolly City, Mm, so it might be just a city in her mind, but it's a very wild, um, both futuristic and anachronistic city um, that is kind of London and Paris and New York all at once with huge skyscrapers and trains crashing constantly and carriages. It's a very chaotic, um, mad place. Dolly adopts this baby and she decides she needs to protect him um, against whatever can threaten this child in this world. So she takes up her medical expertise and um, basically throughout the book she inoculates the baby and for every single disease that exists she gives it chemotherapy just in case it might have cancer. In a series of um, really grotesque events, she um, decides the baby needs a kidney transplant. Um, So she travels to Germany, takes out kidneys from a bunch of babies, transplants it to her baby, only to realize later that now he has three kidneys and she has to take one out. This is the kind of humor and events that happen in this novel so it's not for um everybody i would guess Um, but the novel is also it's very clearly works as a national allegory it wants to be about the state of being at war it was composed during the intifada um, so the palestinian uprising
2: well you have something that you are obsessed with protecting so much that you destroy the thing that you're protecting is pretty much exactly
1: which is also the definition of, you know, excessive immunity, immunity, um, the way it works is to give yourself a little bit of, of poison, basically, to make yourself um, immune, able to withstand more. Um, so there has to be a little bit of, of self-sabotage in creating immunity and creating this um, resilience. But this novel asks, what if we take it to the extreme? What if this instinct of self-preservation really becomes excessive violence um, towards the outside world, for sure, but also towards the self? So in one of the most famous scenes in this novel, Dolly carves the map of Israel on her baby's back. This strange scene of of dedication to the nation, to the state, um, and... The meanings of this scene are are not completely clear. On the one hand, it can really be seen as this, um, you know, satirical parody of the way motherhood in, um, you know, nationally mobilized societies like Israel, motherhood is mobilized as well. You have to raise your sons to be soldiers for the nation so they can go and you know, sacrifice themselves. You know, you can see Dolly as this figure of... Um, like anti-state ethos, um, opposition. And she was often read like that. But there is also, like very clearly, she is a figure of the state there. She is completely embracing this kind of dedication of her child to the nation.
0: I thought it was so interesting to think about her as sort of like in an endless, she seems to me to be in this endless state of defense, um, which as as you note, is not necessary. And then... I was reading Joe's book and thinking about the ways that, um, that Palestinian literature has been shaped by an endless state of exile, right. You know, Joe's book um, for, for, for our listeners to, to remind focuses on the Palestinian short story. And so like as Dali city and, and these other Israeli works are shaped by this sort of constant state of, of defense and the repetition of that and the um, the state of, I don't know, almost like the state of alarm. Like I read Dolly I was reading Dolly City last night before I went to bed, not relaxing. Um, Anyway, but Joe, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about short stories and, and also specifically about how, a little bit about your book and about how statelessness and exile have influenced Palestinian literature. If, if there's, um, if this is like a, a correspondence I can reasonably draw.
3: So part of my wanting to focus on the short story comes from a kind of, Constitutional, root for the underdog, and so if if you know the short story is is the underdog uh, relative to it, you know to the novel uh, that has you know so thoroughly kind of overtaken, and and which is, I think, doubly interesting in, in the Arab context or in the Palestinian context, uh, given that the novel is a, a, a what do you call it, an introduced genre. Um, that is not, you know, indigenous or, or, or native to to Arabic literature. It's 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 adopted from from the European novel. And so it's the novel has become this kind of, you know, in multiple different ways, this colonial genre. It was introduced to the Arab world as a result of a series of colonial exchanges between the Arab world and, and Europe. Uh, it has itself kind of colonized the literary landscape and pushed out a lot of, pre, you know, other other literary genres and forms um, that existed. And so the novel, you know, and, and poetry still retains its kind of p- position of primacy in the Arab world. But the novel is kind of when people say literature, they tend to mean the novel. And so the short story, I thought that it was important to focus on the short story, not least because of the fact that for the first kind of 50 years into the 1980s, at least, it was actually the short story, not the novel. That was the main form of literary p- prose, uh, literary expression in, uh, for Palestinians. Um, for I, like understandable reasons, in retrospect, you have a, a dispersed, exiled population that's living in you know, refugee camps, etc. Um, don't have access to publishing houses and printing presses and you know, all of the, the kind of infrastructure that's necessary um, to produce a novel. Um, but short stories can be quickly printed out in flyers and distributed by hands and, and kind of read by multiple people and kind of can circulate uh, with much greater ease. And so the, it's actually the short story that plays this, this kind of primary role uh, in the wake of 1948, uh, well into the 1980s, where the short story, is actually the main vehicle for Palestinians to to articulate their experience of of dis, dispossession and colonialism and, and and exile and so on, um, and the short story, because of you know its characteristic trait, which namely its brevity, is able to respond to these you know successive exigencies that are happening to the Palestinians with with great speed, right? As opposed to the kind of longer meditation that is. You know the novels' domain. Um, the Palestinian short story is able to respond very quickly to political events as they transpire. So there is this immediacy to the short story um, that is just kind of logistically much more impossible, if, uh, much more difficult, if not impossible, for the novel. And that's why the short story really enjoys this period of primacy until the 1980s when Palestinians do. It kind of, um, um, establish themselves more in their communities of exile and do start to publish lengthier novels, et cetera, at that point.
0: That's so interesting that Shira, I think, referred to the journalistic poems before. Joe, you are sort of talking about, I mean, short stories as a kind of pamphleteering or, or breaking news. And I am, will admit that I am somewhat dismayed to think that, of course, my novelizing is also probably colonial, um. I will have to go and go and reflect on this. Um I mean and like
1: all modern like all modern genres to some extent. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I've yeah, I have a hard time with this kind of narrative of the novel being foreign to our indigenous roots. I mean, yes and no, like we all learn to. Right, as modern people. Exactly. It's not just colonialism. The novel is also the genre of of capitalism, of capitalist modernity. Uh, Sorry, Sugi.
2: (laughs) I already told her that being a novelist was one of the most capitalist things that you could possibly do. She got really mad, but it's true. All right, so we have one last thing that we're going to talk about here. Uh, uh, One of the the worst things you can do is talk about Israel and Palestine if you want to have people yell at you on Twitter. or just generally. <laughs> yeah. OK, that's true. We were thinking about uh, your representative in Minnesota, Ilhan Omar, uh, got in a lot of backlash from members of the Democratic Party, actually, for referring to, quote, atrocities committed by the U.S., Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan and the Taliban. Rashida uh, Talib, who uh, defended her as the first Palestinian member of Congress, can you talk about censorship of conversations about Israel and Palestine and how that space is changing inside and outside of academia and publishing?
1: So, first I think I first I want to call out an article that Fadi Judah just published and the Los Angeles Review of Books. Um, yes, I think it's called something like My Palestinian Poem That the New Yorker Rejected. Um, and it's a long essay. Uh, exactly about this question, the gatekeeping for Palestinian voices in the American sphere. Um, why is it much easier for for Jews and Jews, non-Zionist Jews and Jews critical of Zionism to speak about Palestine than it is for Palestinians um, because of the question of censorship and backlash, which we still unfortunately see um, in in academic spaces, um, as well as in you know, journalism, even though um, there was some, I think, this past um, cycle of fighting, we did see some changes in the way it was covered in American media. And this has to do with um, these new Democrat voices. Um, this has to do with Black Social Lives Matter? Yeah, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, people George becoming, Floyd. George Floyd, people becoming more um, aware and conscious of of instances of um, structural racism and um, Jewish supremacy, white supremacy. Um, terms like apartheid are much more common and accepted um, now. But, I mean, these changes are not happening without a backlash. So um, one of the things we Briefly mentioned, it is the um, IHRA definition of antisemitism, a working definition of antisemitism put forward by the International Holocaust, Holocaust Remembrance Remembers Association. Association, thank you. Um, that is um, very supposedly very broad, but also very problematic because it allows um, criticism of Israel to be defined as antisemitic speech and there is widespread effort to, for campuses, organizations um, to adopt this definition and to use it as a means of, of silencing critiques of Israel. Um, so this is the kind of backlash that we see because I think the narrative is changing.
3: Where I think even, I mean, uh, uh, even the claim that Israel is a settler colonial state, mm-hmm potentially runs the risk of falling afoul of that IHRA definition. And so, um, you know, that just goes to so that even this conversation, because we simply alluded to the fact that Israeli early Israeli literature was itself uh, fully cognizant of the settler colonial reality of the Israeli state. Um, this potentially itself has um, uh, could, could fall afoul of that definition that would equate a uh, criticism of, of the state of Israel or, or the ass- or sh- assertion that Israel is a racist state from its is- inception, etc. I think that was one of the examples. There's a series of examples given on the IHRA website. Um, I, I can't remember exactly. I think it's something like 11 total examples of which nine specifically refer to, uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, refer to Israel. Yeah. And so most of the examples that they themselves give... Um, indicate, uh, incorporate Israel as a kind of integral aspect of uh, anti-Semitic speech.
1: In short, you got yourself into a big load of problems. <laughs> well, half
2: my family is Jewish, so we'll see. Uh, they, they, do, they criticize Israel a fair amount. I'll, I'll talk to them about that rule and see what they see what they have to say. Cheer, Joe, thank you for joining us.
3: We really appreciate it
0: and
2: uh,
3: listening to you. It was great.
1: Thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much for having us. This was a pleasure.
0: Listeners, don't miss Joe and Shear's work. We'll link to the writers they've pointed us to also in our show notes. So you can see that and also read their work there. Thanks so much.
2: That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Anne Kniggendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!